I've entitled the sermon today, He Shall Be Their Peace, from chapter 5. You, you know, um, by way of introduction here, we, we've entered the next election cycle for 2024. I don't know if you've realized that or not. Um, the goal of the candidates during this time is to convince you and convince I, the voters, that things can be better than they are now. That they have a, a vision of what can be if we only elect them to office. They paint a rosy picture full of hope, full of promise, full of prosperity. Of course, the problem is that rarely can these men and women, once elected, ever deliver on these promises fully. They get blocked by Congress. They get blocked by the courts. They run into budget problems. They deal with unexpected crises that deplete resources and energy. Perhaps they even renege on their campaign promises. Imagine that. And even if politicians can deliver on some of their promises, doesn't it seem like we're still talking about the same issues every four years that need to be fixed? The national debt, border and immigration issues, inflation in the economy, jobs, tension with our enemies and battles we may be facing. Oh, yeah. Abortion, rising crime, drug abuse, homelessness. It goes on and on and on, seemingly without end, doesn't it? You know, the night before the election in 1980, candidate Ronald Reagan famously gave a televised speech in which he painted his own vision of America as a shining city on a hill. It was an image originally used by Pilgrim by the name of John Winthrop. Reagan continued using that phrase and casting that vision through both of his two terms as president. In fact, here's how, he's, here's how he described that vision a final time uh, as he left office in 1989. In my mind, it was a tall, proud city on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. Did America become that shining city during the Reagan years? Maybe in part. But not in full, certainly. Problems were still enormous in 1989. Threats to our peace were still very real. Historians will debate Reagan's successes and failures. But friends, can you imagine a candidate who after being elected, fulfilled all his promises, ruled with absolute integrity, and shaped our country into the strongest and most glorious place we could ever imagine. 
I'm not holding my breath for such a candidate here and now. (laughs) But we find one in our text this morning. After the devastating prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Do you remember how we left last time? The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is demolished. It's a hill that's like a wasteland. It's overgrown. And remember how we learned that that passage motivated King Hezekiah to lead a national repentance. And in in chapters 4 and 5 of this week, Micah paints a picture of glorious contrast to that one. Instead of a land broken down and overgrown, Micah tells in our passage this week of a Zion that should have filled every Israelite with overflowing hope. Let's break down the text this morning into four units that I I think will help us to get a fuller glimpse of what this future looks like and how it will come to pass. So here's the first unit that I'd like to look at this morning, and that is the place of peace. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, the place of peace. The heap of ruins that we saw at the end of chapter 3 will someday become the highest mountain. It's impossible to not see the contrast between the end of chapter 3 and these verses describing, as it does in verse 1 here, the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's the temple. When will this happen? The text says, in the latter days. Probably a reference to the the time near the end of human history when God's kingdom will be established in the world. People are pictured in these verses as a stream flowing into the city. Normally, you'll know that uh, how gravity and everything works. Streams flow downward from the top of mountains, but not this city. Its streams flow up into the city, representing all ethnic groups, people, tongues, tribes, and nations. Why are they coming? These verses tell us to hear the word of the king and to walk in it. In fact, the word walk is used five times in these opening verses. They want to walk in the word of the Lord. What is the result? Well, look at verse 3. No more injustice. Verse 3 and 4, no more war. Wouldn't that be great? Verse 4, no more fear. What are we describing? A place of peace. True peace. The kind of peace that politicians would love to deliver for us, but sadly never can on their own. Verse 4 says each person will sit under his own vine and fig tree in peace and fruitfulness, just like it was during the golden days of King Solomon. That phrase, under his own vine and his fig tree, is a, is a specific phrase that goes back to the time of Solomon, all the way back to 1 Kings 4.25. 
each person in this city will be committed, verse 5 tells us, to walking in the name of the Lord. The king will gather his people. Verses 6-8 through eight tell us. He will rule over them. He will take a weak and broken people and make them into the pinnacle of strength and glory again. He will make Zion a beacon to the nations. And He will make it the dispenser of true world peace. One author writes this, it will be the center of a true United Nations. By the way, interestingly, Isaiah, as as we've learned, who was a prophet at the same time as Micah, Isaiah wrote almost the exact same vision of Mount Zion. If you take the time later to go read Isaiah chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 5, you'll notice they have almost the identical words here to Micah chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. In other words, both of these prophets in Judah at this time are putting forth the exact same vision of the future. And that's this. We know there's exile coming. We've already been told. We know there's going to be more pain, more suffering. But exile will lead to glory. There is tremendous hope for the Lord's people if they will hang on and endure and follow His Word. There's a place of peace prophesied here. Then notice, secondly, there's a people of peace. For this section, I want to look at verses 9 through 13, and then also over in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Both of these speak of the remnants, this group of people that God is going to save in this great trial, in this great exile, and what they will have to endure to get to this time of glory and peace in the future. So from the future days, Micah now discusses the suffering of their present crisis. And remember where they are in this point in history. The fact is, Assyria is on their doorstep. There is pain to come. There is exile to come. And these verses talk about that. But it is temporary. How will the people get to the peace that Micah has just described so beautifully? And Micah uses two images here in verses 9 to 13, and then he uses two images in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. We'll look at all four of these images briefly. There's, first of all, in chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, he uses the image of a woman in labor, and then he uses the image of a threshing floor. Do you see that? So, so they, here's what Mike is saying. Yes, there will be pain. Like a mother in full term, feeling those contractions, the pain. She's heavy laden. She's ready to give birth. But the labor must come before the baby comes. And brothers and sisters, there is a baby. And we'll get to it shortly. Yes, it will feel at times like they are being beat down on the 
threshing floor and trampled on. That's how they used to separate the grain. In, in the ancient days, they would, they, at first they would put the wheat down on the ground and they would stomp on it with their feet and they would use their cattle to trample on it. And they would take rods and they would beat it to separate the seed from the rest of the wheat. But one day, Micah says at the end of chapter 4, they will do the trampling themselves. And they will be victorious over these enemies under whom they have to endure much suffering in the present time. Interestingly, look at verse 10 there for just a moment. Verse 10 says, you shall go to Babylon. That's kind of interesting. If you're Micah and you're in that moment, it's not Babylon who is at the door. It's Assyria. Remember? This is, this is Assyria who is threatening them at the moment. But even here, if you're paying attention, if the people of God are paying attention to the Word of God being delivered by His prophet Micah, you should find some hope. Yes, there will be exile, but not to Assyria, as it seems like it would. As we know from last week's message, Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord to save the people resulted in a miraculous rescue. You have Assyria in 722 B.C. sweeping through the northern kingdom, conquering it, destroying it, taking people into exile, conquering the capital city of Samaria, and now they've come down to Judah. They've conquered most of the significant cities in Judah already. And now they're laying siege. They've surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They've surrounded God's holy mountain. And there's a massive army. And we learned how Hezekiah prayed to the Lord as a result of Micah's prophecy to save the people. And it resulted in a miraculous rescue. You remember what happened? The angel of the Lord came down and took care of business. And it added a hundred, over 120 more years of freedom to the southern kingdom of Judah until finally they would go into exile in 586 B.C. to Babylon. Just as Micah says, to Babylon you will go. So there's even a glimmer of hope there in the middle of their current problem with Assyria. Now over in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, Micah gives two more pictures of this remnant. The first, uh, the first picture is that they will be like the dew of the earth and then like a hungry young lion. The Bible, Micah is, Micah is saying here that when they achieve their victory, after they go through this time of suffering, their victory will come suddenly, like the dew in the morning. It's there. Before, before you're even up in the morning, the dew's out on the ground. It's there. It's appeared. It's come suddenly. It will also come devastatingly, like a lion would feast on helpless sheep. They will have that kind of uh, um, unfettered victory over all their enemies. This is how he paints the picture of the remnants, the picture of the people of peace who have to suffer, they have to endure, but they will get to glory. It will come. I want you to notice third, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Over in chapter 5 now, look at verses 1 through 6. The labor pains... 
that he predicted in chapter 4 results in a prophetic birth. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, is one of the most significant texts for the coming of the Messiah in all the Old Testament. Let's break it down here a bit more. Verse 1 of chapter 5 refers to their, their present situation. They're under siege by Assyria. In fact, the Assyrian army has, as it were, symbolically struck the judge of Israel. They are attacking not only the city of Jerusalem, but they are attacking her God as well. Make no mistake about that. And I want to take you back just for a second to the bold blasphemy of the Assyrian spokesman back in Isaiah 26, 18 through 20. Listen to these words. This is what the Assyrian said to Hezekiah in the city. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? That, to them, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, nope. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Again, the answer is, nope. Been there, conquered that. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Blasphemy. Attacking Israel's God. And that's why when we get to verse 2, we find the word but. Because everything changes with the prophecy of the prince. Here comes their salvation. I love the idea that the angel of the Lord who would save them in Hezekiah's day is probably also the same one who will be born in Bethlehem. A ruler is coming who will bring ultimate peace. Notice several aspects to this ruler here in verse 2. First, he represents a new beginning in the house of David. Bethlehem Ephratah is also the birthplace of another ruler, King David. Verse 2 says, Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is a reference probably to Bethlehem, to the house of David, the Davidic dynasty. This is a new start for David's line when it seemed like his house failed. I mean, they're on the verge of extinction from their, from their point of view. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he, would never, that he would never lose that ruler from the house of David over his people. And God will never fail to keep his side of a bargain, of his side of an agreement, his side of a covenant. David's line will continue. And it will continue forever. And it will continue through this new ruler. Not the ones who have failed, but through this one. Second, this ruler is coming from a very humble and lowly place, just like David did. And God will make him great, just as he did David. Look at that little phrase there in verse 2. Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
Look at this map. Look how small Judah was compared to Assyria. You see the green? That's Assyria. And maybe if you've got binoculars, you can see the little nation of Judah down in the bottom. Maybe you can see the little pinprick. That's Jerusalem. And you don't even see Bethlehem. It's a small, insignificant place compared to mighty Assyria. But because of who would be born here, Bethlehem has everlasting significance. When Matthew's Gospel quotes this verse, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, listen to how Matthew changes the emphasis of the verse. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the ruler of Judah. Do you hear that? Do you hear the change? Micah says, too little. Matthew says, by no means the least. That's how something can be changed when the Messiah shows up. This is also consistent with a third aspect of this ruler in verse 2. From you, from Bethlehem, shall come forth for me. The, the purpose of this ruler will be to serve the great I Am. You see the Lord all through here with those small capital letters. L-O-R-D. That's the Lord. That's Yahweh. That's the I Am. The personal name of God. He, this ruler, will be a servant of the Lord. He, unlike all the other rulers that have tried to rule Judah and Israel, he will always follow the Lord's will. He will always please his Father. Fourth, this ruler will step forth from Bethlehem to be, as the text says, ruler in Israel. This is one of the reasons that many Jews today have never accepted Jesus as the Messiah. You ever wonder why the Jews don't accept Jesus as the Messiah? Well, one reason is because they're spiritually blind. But here's another reason. They're waiting for a ruler. They've read the Old Testament. Now, in my view, they read the Old Testament fairly selectively. And they overlook a lot of things in the Old Testament with regard to the promised Messiah. But one thing the Jews know is that the Messiah will be a ruler. And Jesus came and was not a ruler. He was executed. So he can't be the Messiah. They were waiting for a ruler. Hey, the disciples were waiting for a ruler. You remember? Even after the cross. Even after the resurrection. Do you remember? Acts chapter 1. Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven. The disciples ask Him. Acts chapter 1. Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They just don't get it. They don't understand the timeline. They don't understand the plan of God. They're still looking for that time of rule. Now, there is, of course, a sense, very much so, 
in which Jesus is ruling today. The Bible says he is seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven. He is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. There's a very real sense in which Jesus is ruling right now and always has been. He's the sovereign of the, of the whole universe. But he's not ruling on earth right now. Like the Bible says, he will one day. And this is a good time, I think, just to take a pause for just a couple of minutes and review something about biblical prophecy that's helpful to you as you read your Bible. When Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any other Old Testament prophet received revelation from the Lord about the future, they rarely were given a timeline along with the data. You've probably noticed that. It's kind of like looking at a mountain range from a long ways away. All the mountains look like they're kind of in the same location. But when you get up close to the mountains, you may find that these mountains are miles between each other with foothills on either side. Just huge distances and gaps that you you can't see from afar and it's kind of like that it's a little like that in biblical prophecy sometimes there would be a partial fulfillment of the prophecy in the prophet's own day and yet a future fulfillment still to come as well let me give you one example of this in isaiah chapter 7 starting at verse 10 and following The Lord is interacting with evil king Ahaz. And the Lord says to Ahaz through Isaiah, he says, Ahaz, ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you. You know, you want to know what's going to happen, how I'm going to take care of it. Ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you. Ahaz says, no, thank you. I'll pass. And so the Lord gives the king a sign himself. You remember? In Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah says. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this is where all you jump in and go, I know that one. That's a prophecy about Jesus. And you're right. It is. We know it is. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quotes Isaiah 7, 14, applies it to the birth of Jesus. Well done. However, if you turn a page in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 8, you discover Isaiah has a baby. Right after that prophecy, Isaiah has a son. That is a sign of God being with his people. And the term Emmanuel shows up again too. So it appears that the prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz in 7.14 had an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's son in chapter 8. But it also had a later fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. That's not uncommon in biblical prophecy. And don't forget, Jesus is still 700 years away at the time of Micah. 
You remember the, that mountain range? Those prophets are looking way into the distance. They've got to get through Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome before this baby will be born in Bethlehem. So back to Micah 5. Even though Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, he's not going to do all the things that follow in verses 3 through 6 at his first coming. And this is one of the things the prophets weren't told. They didn't know this. This wasn't revelation that was given to them. We know this because of future revelation that's given to us. Because we know that Jesus is coming back again. That there is a second coming of the Lord Jesus. And guess what happens at his second coming? All this stuff in 3 through 6. So just remember that when you read through Old Testament prophecy, don't get too confused when it seems like everything isn't all fulfilled at the same time. That's just not how prophecy works. Does that make sense? Maybe. Okay. Discuss it more in your ABF classes. Now, what will this ruler ultimately do? Simply put, verse 4 says he will shepherd his flock. This emphasis on shepherding is also picked up in the Matthew 2.6 quote, that he will shepherd his people. The passage here in Micah says he will shepherd in the strength and the name of the Lord. And this shepherding image, which has come up before in Micah, certainly reminds us of another shepherd. Now, depending on which way you go, you may be thinking, Jesus, but I'm thinking the other way. Who am I thinking of? David, right? The other, the other ruler who came from this same town, who was a shepherd and would shepherd the people of Israel as well. This is not the first time we've heard about shepherding. It reminds us of David, but it also reminds us, it reminded me of my, Micah chapter 2 and verse 12, where we saw that the great I am will gather his flock. And we've already talked about the Lord being a shepherd to Israel. And here, this promised Messiah is said that he will shepherd his flock. What else will he do? His work will reconcile brothers back to Israel in verse 3. His work will keep his own secure in verse 4. His work will be comprehensive. It will be to the ends of the earth, verse 4. And he himself will be their peace, verse 5. Isaiah agrees. When Isaiah is describing this baby's arrival in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, one of the titles that he gives this baby is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6. Now what exactly to the second part of verse 5 and verse 6, what do they refer to? I have to be honest, I'm not completely certain. It's a hard passage. But I'll give you a shot at it. I'll give you my best attempt here. Evidently, the Messiah will raise up leaders like himself to protect his kingdom 
and uphold order and justice. Where it says seven and eight there, it's not saying a total of 15. It's a way of saying we'll raise up seven guys, and if seven's not enough, we'll get eight guys. In other words, there's going to be an abundance of uh, leadership and authority under the Messiah's rule. Some see these verses a little more symbolically. It's a possibility. For example, the men in verse 5 could refer to people like the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers that Ephesians 4.11 references. Men that God raises up, to, that the Lord raises up to help to preserve and shepherd his body, his people. The nation of Assyria in verse 6 may be a generic reference to all enemies of the Messiah. Similar to the way Babylon is used in biblical prophecy. That these are enemies of the cross, enemies of God that we fight against. And one reason that could be the case is because it's also called, here in, uh, I think it's verse uh, 6, it's called the land of Nimrod. Do you see that? It's called the, not only Assyria, it's called the land of Nimrod. Well, who is Nimrod? Well, if you think back in biblical history, Nimrod was the founder of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10. It seems like maybe Micah is using Assyria and Nimrod in a symbolic way here for the enemies of God. For the ones who tried to create their own city on a hill. Remember that? To reach up to God. So in a beautifully poetic way, Micah, I think, is saying here that the king of peace will triumph over Nimrod. And that Bethlehem, as insignificant as it is, Bethlehem is greater than Babel ever was or could be. There will be enough leaders appointed to defeat the enemy in its own territory. The shepherd will send out other conquering shepherds. So to sum up this third point, this wonderful section on the birth of the Messiah, the shepherd is coming. That's what Micah's message is. The shepherd is coming. They didn't know when. It would be 700 years. Multiple generations from now. They would have gone through exile and return and all kinds of things in, on the way. But the shepherd is coming and the shepherd will be their peace. In fact, he will be the prince of peace. Notice finally with me in verses 10 to 15, the God of peace, the God of peace. These final six verses in chapter 5 are very similar to two other prophetic passages. They're not identical, but very, very, very similar. One is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And then Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. We'll read the Zechariah portion in just a minute. In these passages, God goes to war with war itself to bring about the peace that's described in chapter 4. God's wrath is directed against military objects, against religious objects that the people are trusting in other than in the Lord alone. John Calvin described this section in this way. The salvation of God could not otherwise come to them 
than by stripping them of all vain and false confidence. In this passage, just just scan it with your eyes, 10 through 15. God says, I will cut off four times. I will cut off. I will destroy. I will throw down. I will root out. I will execute. In other words, God is in charge. God the sovereign is standing up here and he is rooting out everything that, uh, that is an obstacle to the people trusting only in the Lord. And it will leave the people with no other alternative but to trust him alone. The, the, the one thing that might be unfamiliar to you there is in verse 14, actually 13 and 14, talks about idolatry. And it, it talks about these stone carvings and pillars. That's a reference to the Baal statues of, that Israel worshipped, that they, they would carve out of stone. And then Baal's mistress, if you want to call it that, uh, for these fake gods, uh, was a, an idol named Asherah. And Asherah, the female version of Baal, uh, they would carve idols out of wood. Uh, They would take tall trees and make figures, and they were called Asherah poles. But Baal and Asherah were these idols that Israel had worshipped over and over and over again during their times of wickedness and rebellion in the Old Testament. And God says, no more. No more. Before concluding this, Let me read the parallel passage in Zechariah 9 because I think it complements this text so well and it provides kind of a bookend here as well for the Messiah's work. Look at Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That again is a symbol of humility, of peace bearing. I will cut off the chariot. This is where you're going to sound familiar to our passage. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And what will this humble man do, this humble king? He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river, probably the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? This is our Savior. Not only at His birth was this prophesied, but even here, just before His death, His great work was prophesied. I'll ask the praise team to come to the front for our final song as they're coming. Several thoughts of gospel application from our text I just want to point out to you and then leave you to discuss it um, with your brothers and sisters later. First of all, a city on a hill. A city on a hill. We read about this amazing city on a hill in chapter 4, the opening verses of chapter 4. And it's got to bring to your mind, if you just sit and meditate on that for any length of time, you're going to be like, oh, wait a minute. Jesus said something like that. And he did in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount, verses 14 through 16. He called his disciples to be like a city 
that is set on a hill. To be the light of the world that shines in that city through their good works. And brothers and sisters, maybe in some way as you think about your life today, you and I can help to fulfill that prophecy. To shine our lights to do good deeds, to do good works, so that people see that light and glorify our Father in heaven. The idea of learning to walk, remember the, the, the term walk was used several times uh, in the opening of chapter 4 as well. And it reminded me of Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he gives a similar instruction as to how we should walk. Here's what he said in, in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How do we do that? Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Stay committed, brothers and sisters, to the Word of God that you have been taught. And if you're not rooted in Him, if you you do not have a foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His Word, we want to appeal to you to turn away from the life that you are leading in your own way, in your own strength, in your own reason, and humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross bearing your sins so that you can avoid the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve for our sins. Another thing here I think that uh, we should think about is this whole idea of enduring now and then experiencing glory later. This was something that turned my mind to 1 Peter chapter 1 in that really great opening section of 1 Peter 1. And here's just a couple verses in the middle of it, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, Peter says to the church that's experiencing persecution. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. You're suffering for the gospel. You're enduring in this life, being faithful despite the hardship, will be found to result in glory when Jesus returns. That's an important theme throughout the Bible, isn't it? Not just New Testament, Old Testament. Yes, Mike is telling them, you're going to go into exile. Babylon is where you're going to go. But one day, people are going to stream into the city of God on the highest mountain, and there will be peace. Glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. How does knowing the end of the story 
prepare you to endure what may still be coming. Ever think about that? Do you know when we suffer the most? When we don't know why we're suffering. The unknown is what really bothers us as humans. We don't know how long we're going to suffer. We may not know why we're suffering. We don't know when it's going to stop or how worse it's going to become. But if you know the end of the story, will it help you to endure? Oh, yes, brothers and sisters. Oh, yes, it does. Cling to the promise. Cling to that vision of Mount Zion. And when the suffering comes your way, oh yeah, it'll still, it'll still be hard. Oh yeah, it'll still be painful. Yes, it may take you down to the bottom of your barrel. But glory is coming. And you can endure with the Lord's strength. The idea of labor pains reminds me all the way back to the story at the beginning of the Bible. Did it you? Why do we have labor pains anyway? Genesis 3, 14-16 reminds us that labor pain comes as a result of the curse of sin. But in that curse also came a promise, right? The seed of the woman. And Galatians 3.16 tells us that Jesus is that seed that we've been waiting for all the way since the beginning. And as you endure those labor pains, those times of suffering, just remember what comes as a result. The glory of Jesus Christ. Look forward to that day. Helps us to endure. It would help Micah's people to endure, knowing that the baby was coming. Now we can look back and say, the baby came. And we're thankful for that. But the New Testament talks about laboring pains too, doesn't it? The fact that we groan. And we're, what we're waiting for is the second coming of Jesus when these bodies in which we suffer will be changed and made immortal and glorious like the Lord's resurrection body. That's the labor pains we experience now. So hold on, because the baby is coming back. The Savior is coming back again. And then finally, of course, uh, and I think this is just appropriate to finish with, this whole theme of incarnation. God made flesh. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus was born in Bethlehem just as prophesied, in obscurity, in an animal manger, in an animal feeding trough. The Magi, the wise men, used Micah 5.2 to find him in Bethlehem. The theme of peace marked his birth. Do you remember those angels on the hillside outside Bethlehem? Sang a song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Because who was being born was the Prince of Peace. It marked his birth. It also marked his death, didn't it? By granting peace to us who believed. Remember what Romans 5.1 tells us? Therefore, if you are justified, there is no condemnation. We have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been justified, you have peace with God. Do you believe? Do you hear His Word and walk in it? Because if you do, you will be gathered safely, securely by your shepherd and you will know peace with God and you will know it now as well as forevermore. If you reject His Word, you will end up like verse 15 of chapter 5. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. If you reject God's Word, you will end up like the nations who rejected His Word. And the wrath of God will remain on you. And there will be no hope. And there will be no peace. Friend, I want to just call you this morning. If you don't know, if you don't know that Jesus has saved you from your sin, that you, are, that you are leaning on Him, you are trusting in Him and Him alone to save you, to forgive you, to give you eternal life, to give you peace with God. Today, we would love to take a moment after this service and show you how you can become a Christian, how you can become a follower of Jesus. In this little room right off here to my right, to your left, uh, we'll have a biblical counselor after the service who will pray with you, open the Bible, and show you how you can start following Jesus and how you can know the Prince of Peace personally.